Well, thank you very much for your kind words of welcome, and it's good to be with you once again. Um, it just doesn't seem to be um, quite. Uh, it was just it was just two weeks ago since I was last uh, with you, and it's a real joy to be with you again. As we come to God's word, may the Lord help us and grant us His blessing. Now, I want to speak to you today from. Isaiah 51 and verses 1, 2, and 3. That's Isaiah 51, verses 1, 2, and 3. And let me just read the respect, the respective verses. It reads thus, Listen to me, you who follow after righteousness, you who seek the Lord, look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the hole of the pit from which you were dug. Look to, your, to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who bore you. For I called him alone and blessed him and increased him. For the Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places. He will make her wilderness like Eden and her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in it. Thanksgiving and the voice of melody. Now, it was in 1961 in a very remote island in the South Atlantic Ocean, that is the island of Tristan da Cunha, that a volcanic eruption took place. And the aftermath of that eruption was that it forced the small community of some 295 people to abandon their island home. The British government evacuated the islanders by ship to uh, the United Kingdom and to accommodation at military bases in Surrey and also at Calshot in Southampton Water. The British government assumed the evacuation was permanent and that the community would settle into British life and society. However, the islanders found it very difficult to settle down in England, and they found it very awkward indeed. It just wasn't like their island home. It was a little later then, about a year later, that the Royal Society... Um, launched an expedition to Tristan da Cunha to determine if the volcano was still active. And they discovered that the volcanic activity had ceased completely. And they returned to England and made it known that it was that the volcano had ceased to show any activity at all and that if the islanders wished to return to the, to Tristan de Cunha, they could return with complete safety. Their lives were not in danger, and once their homes were repaired and, sort, and sorted out, so they could resume their, their lives once again. So it became very clear to the residents of Tristan de Cunha in England, in exile, if you like, that they could return. And indeed, in November of 1963, some two years later, all the islanders had returned 
to Tristan da Cunha. Now, why I bring you this historical and geographical story is that for the Tristanians in England, the news that they could return to their island home was the best news they could possibly hear. And just to know that the volcanic activity had ceased and that they could return home and be there once again, living out their own lives in that place, that was indeed very, very good news to the islanders. We go back somewhat to Isaiah's day. And Isaiah's prophecy in, in chapter 51 pointed to the future exile of Judah in Babylon. But in spite of the Lord's coming judgment to come upon Jerusalem and Judah on account of their sin, here is God's mercy in chapter 51 because it speaks of God's comfort that the believing remnant of Judah would eventually return home to Judah and to Jerusalem. It was comfort because it told the people who would eventually be in captivity that the Lord had not abandoned his people, but that he would remain absolutely faithful to them and his mercy would be extended to them in spite of their sin and in spite of them being in exile. Now think of the encouragement then that came to the people as they heard Isaiah 51 being read publicly, or perhaps for those who were able to have their own parchments of the prophecy of Isaiah to read this particular portion and to realize here is God's comfort coming to me. What a help that must have been. Or perhaps even as one of the uh, priests of the day would have taken up the scriptures and read them publicly at a gathering of God's people. Isaiah 51, not just gobbledygook, not that which was impossible to understand and comprehend, but those sweet words of comfort that God had not forsaken his people What great comfort, what great encouragement came to his people long ago as they heard these things and as they read them for themselves. Of course, we cannot forget the uh, chapters that, that lie just a little on in Isaiah. Isaiah 53, that great chapter about the suffering servant of Jehovah, And, of course, we know that that suffering servant is the promised Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And now that when the people heard about that great deliverer that God would provide, how their hearts were comforted, even though they might not see the immediate uh, realization of Christ uh, entering this world, yet the promise was there of a deliverer and, and of a man who would deal perfectly with their sins, you see. And there was therefore, at, at when uh, Judah and Jerusalem went into exile, there was the hope that the, for the remnant of Judah. And as we think of that hope, the hope of being able to, as it were, return 
to Judah and Jerusalem for those people and what great encouragement it brought. Should it not also be something for you and me? In our day, as we, we face the, the very real situations of life and its troubles, its difficulties, its challenges, and even within the church of Jesus Christ, challenges and difficulties, troubles. And you read a chapter like this, and it assures you and me that God is in control, and he has his hand upon you, and his promise to you and me is this, that he will not leave us, he will not forsake us, he is there with us. You're his blood-bought child if you are a Christian here this morning. And his pledge to you is to be your comfort and your strength and your help. And never can he therefore turn his back upon you. But let's look at the three verses of our passage this morning. And as I would draw your attention then to verse 1. And um, I've entitled it, Listen carefully to the Lord. Listen carefully to the Lord. Uh, just to look at those verses, those, those words, at least in the first verse. Now the Lord spoke through Isaiah to the faithful who would be eventually an exile in Babylon. And the Lord commanded his people to do what? To listen carefully to his word when it was read aloud or it was preached. Now the reality in Israel's history was that the people of Judah and Jerusalem and also, of course, the northern kingdom of Israel, for that matter, did not always listen carefully to what the Lord was saying through his word. They didn't actually want to hear it because it upset their lifestyle. It disturbed their practice of idolatry and sin for some of them. So for, for God's word to be publicly read didn't mean that they were obligated to listen carefully to it. Indeed, they could be dismissive if they chose so to do. And that's how God's people indeed were. And what a dismal track record. They have the word, very words of life. And yet, hearing them, reading them, hearing it taught and preached upon so, no thanks, not for me, not for me. Uh, that's a great tragedy indeed. And so it was with God's people. Read, read the Old Testament and you'll see for yourself. And it's not just that the word was there, the Old Testament um, uh, books and, and parchments and so on. But the Lord in his mercy sent his prophets to the people with a word from God. And God spoke to his people. Isaiah is just one such man. And he speaks the words of God, yes, that were heavily upon his heart. He must speak them and bring them to the people. So important to him. And he brings them before the, the people of God with due empathy, with great concern, and so on. And what a tragedy it is then that people could hear the word in Jerusalem and Judah and yet pay little attention to it. 
And the hearing of the word here means to hear it and to obey what is said. Those two things are inextricably linked together. You don't just hear God's word and say, not for me, but the onus is upon you and me when we hear the word of God that we have to obey it and do what it says. And this is what this particular passage is, is drawing our attention to. Now, even to this day, um, it, it means that this particular problem I've tried to highlight to you of hearing the word of God but being dismissive, saying, well, it's not for me, or I've got my life to live before I bother about being a Christian and so on, the problem applies even to this day when the word of God is read and preached. The congregation may be distracted from paying attention because sometimes of genuine weariness. Mothers with young nursing children up for most of the night trying to pacify a difficult child who's crying. But it's the Lord's day the next day and they come to the church because they want to hear the word of God and they're there with their child and perhaps it is even that the child is, uh, doesn't wail and doesn't cry. But the mother is exhausted and she, as she's listening, you can see the eyes closing and eventually she's gone. She's fallen asleep. Uh, well, you don't always listen well when you are exceedingly weary for whatever reason it is. And perhaps it may be that even this morning you have concerns that are upon you, the things that will be happening tomorrow or in the course of the week, and they are weighing upon you. And even as the word of God is brought to you this morning, yes, you're in the place of worship, but your mind is far away. It's been sidetracked by the concerns of tomorrow. Maybe it is that you just genuinely find it difficult to concentrate. Uh, even this morning, as we were reminded by uh, our brother Tim Norton, it's a hot day. <laughs> I think this afternoon is going to be much warmer still. And when the heat is up, it just seems to help us to be a lot more drowsy and uh, just not, not always connect with what's being said and preached upon. And so we might miss so much of God's word and it, we might lose out, as it were. And then perhaps it is that some of you may be even disinterested in the preaching. You know, your heart isn't in this stuff, is it? For some, perhaps some of you young people. Or you just wish you didn't have to come to church, but your parents urge you to come. And you sit there and you can't wait for the hour to be ended and you're disinterested and your mind wanders and you think about the things that you'd rather be doing, perhaps communicating with your friends or playing some other game or just being at home and so on. And your mind wanders all over the place and you're not listening to the word of God. Oh, I would urge you, please, don't daydream, young people especially, but you know, engage with what's being said because it's for your soul's sake that, that, that you must do that. And the benefit then of listening to God's word with care will lead on to obedience and submission to it. Of our Lord Jesus Christ's preaching, it is said that the common people heard him 
gladly. There were so many distractions in Jesus' day as he preached and taught to people. Think about his ministry and healing people. That, that in a sense, was a distraction. Yes, God was glorified in it. And it gave that stamp of authenticity to the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. But even in those situations, it could have been distracting to the people who were wanting and eager to listen to the Lord Jesus Christ. But yet, we are told that the common people heard him gladly. Others even said, no man spoke like this man, for he speaks with authority, not as the scribes and Pharisees. People listened to him. They wanted to listen to him. And the common people hung on his words. And surely it did them a great deal of good, even as the preaching of the word of God and reading of it should do you and me a great deal of good. But then you think about the enemies of our Lord Jesus Christ, like the Pharisees, the Sadducees. They came along to listen to what Jesus was saying. They came with a critical spirit to destroy and break down and to, to cast doubt upon his character and the authenticity of what he was saying. So they listened to Jesus. They were critical and they made the point by ignoring what they heard. That's, that's the difference there. The common people heard Jesus the Pharisees heard Jesus too, and yet they would not listen to it and submit to it. They would not do that. Now, who is the Lord addressing in this first verse? Who is he talking to? It, Isaiah tells us that it was those who pursued righteousness actively and those who sought the Lord with determination. Follow after righteousness, you who seek the Lord, look, uh, uh, sorry, that's follow after righteousness, you who seek the Lord. And so then we have a, a, a group of people who are defined by the Lord. It is those who pursued righteousness, those who sought the Lord. It was the men and women who were faithful to the Lord in Jerusalem before the a Babylonian siege of the city. It was, they were the people who were faithful to the Lord after they were taken into Babylon, into exile. It was the same people who remained faithful through all the 70 years of the exile in Babylon. And you, what a glorious example you have in the person of Daniel, the, the prophet. 70 years coming into Babylon as a young man, but serving the Lord in spite of all his other duties that he had to serve the nation of Babylon. But he worshipped the Lord faithfully for all that length of time. And think about some of the children who were born to uh, the, the, the Jewish parents, the, the, the parents of the remnant in exile, some of them were taught the word of God and they embraced it and God graciously changed their lives. And what I'm trying to tell you here this morning is that God defines the people, those who seek him, you see, those who follow after righteousness as being those who had a heart for God, 
God had changed their hearts and they wanted, therefore, to live for his glory. Here, if if we may put it in New Testament terms, were the Old Testament saints of God, faithful to him. They knew their God and they walked in his ways. They were faithful believers. They were the remnant of Judah and Jerusalem, a little group of men and women, children, faithful to God, who knew their God. So, when Israel was in exile, surely then they may have listened a lot more carefully to the word of God. They were out of their comfort zone, the security of Jerusalem and Judah. They were in a foreign country. And when they had opportunity to meet together to worship the Lord, how they would have hung on the words of Scripture, you see, and listened far more attentively to it. And isn't it just the same for you and me? We find ourselves in difficulties and trouble, a time of questioning, a doubt. What do I do now? And as a Christian, what do you do? Oh, you can certainly come to the Lord in prayer, but one of the things that is fundamental, you'll come to the Word of God. And perhaps in your need, you'll want to do that because you want God to speak to you, you see. So you go into the Word, you dig into it, and you find therein that which will help you and comfort you, encourage you and guide you. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Saviour, then here is God's word for you and me. Listen very carefully to the public reading of the word of God, the Bible. Listen carefully to the preaching of the word of God. Listen carefully, but obey it also. Remember how I put it earlier. It's the hearing and it's the obeying, and they come together, you see. And may you be granted that ability to do just that. Now, listen when the preacher may not be particularly easy to follow. Preachers have their off days too, I can assure you, where things just don't seem to go quite right. It happens, and perhaps you may find, I just don't understand what this man is saying. I don't get him this morning. Sorry, the message has passed me by. Listen, when the, when the preacher may be hard to follow. Listen, when the preacher's ability may need improvements. Listen to what he is saying from the word of God. Listen, perhaps, when your esteem for the preacher may be low or little. Listen, not for the sake of the preacher, but for the sake of the word of God that will do you good. Listen carefully. Listen when the preacher may repeat himself and say the same thing again and again. You say, oh, why does he do that? Just wasting time even if he repeats himself, listen. Why do I say that? Because in listening carefully, you may be greatly surprised at what God has to say to you. You may be greatly surprised. As I was pondering this particular verse, the thought or the the situation came to mind of um, 
Spurgeon's conversion in Colchester. And it, it was an absolutely miserable winter's uh, day. And uh, he set off t- to hear his uh, father preach it. But there was this huge snowstorm, it was freezing cold. And there was this bad snowstorm. And Spurgeon, with all good intentions, just felt he couldn't make it to hear his father preach the word of God. So he went into a Methodist church along the way. It was the nearest one. At least he'd be sheltered from the cold, you see. Now, there is a young Spurgeon, a teenager, and he enters the church, and he was thinking, well, perhaps I'll be able to hear the word of God preached by some um, experienced Methodist preacher. The preacher didn't show up. He didn't make it because of the foul weather. One of the men in the congregation, hardly skilled in preaching the word of God, undertook then to stand in the pulpit and to do what he could at least to preach. And Spurgeon himself says, after 10 minutes he'd exhausted the topic, he couldn't say another word. But the man looked at Spurgeon and he says, young man, you need to look to Jesus Christ, look to Jesus Christ. If you don't, your life will be miserable. That's a moment. I'm just paraphrasing that. But my dear friends, do you not see the point? Spurgeon, in his spiritual need, went into that church that day, and God met with him. The speaker wasn't amazing, wasn't compelling, wasn't gifted. It probably would have put us to sleep, if I may put it to you as bluntly as that. But Spurgeon was all ears and he wanted to hear what God would say to him. And that day, God had dealings with Spurgeon the sinner and transformed his life. And who would have thought that a simple man could stand up and preach a pathetic message based on the gospel of Christ? That God used it. Be wise. Come to church. Take up your Bible. Listen to what God is saying in the Word. Listen to it. Listen to what the preacher says. It will do you more good than perhaps you even realize. Now, secondly, we're going to look at uh, uh, God's mercy as we find it in verses 1 and 2. Look attentively at God's mercy. And the word look that you find there It's expressed um, twice. It's in verse 1. We're told to look to the rock from which you were hewn and look to Abraham, your father. Now, the Lord urged the remnant to look to the rock that stood firm, which he hewed or fashioned, uh, from which he um, hewed or fashioned them. And this is the work of God to a huge or to fashion and then similarly they were to look at the pit or the quarry from which God dug them again it's it's a strong passive uh, tense in the original so it's the work of God you see there this is what I did God is saying this is what I did for them and therefore I urge you to look to Abraham. Okay. Now, 
The Lord commanded the remnant to look and consider very carefully what he had done in making them the physical and spiritual descendants of believing Abraham. In verse 2, Abraham is described as believing Israel's father, while Sarah, on the other hand, is believing Israel's mother. Almighty God worked in Abraham's life, urging him to leave the ordered life of Haran with its idol worship. The name Haran means moon god. And immediately you'll understand exactly the pattern of life for Abraham. He worshipped idols, as did his father. That was the pattern of life, you see. Abraham was a sinner. He needed the grace of God. And God came to him in that situation, in the ordered life of Haran with his idol worship and caused him to leave Haran and to move on and settle in Canaan. Listen to what it says in Genesis chapter 12 and verses 1, 2 and 3. God speaks and he said to Abraham, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God spoke to Abraham. Abraham heard God speaking to him. Abraham was given faith to believe that what God was saying was genuine. He trusted the Lord. He believed what God had said. And so it was that Abraham obeyed God's word, you see. And he left Haran and became a nomad, a wandering man, pitching his tent here for a while in, in, in Canaan and there and moving on afterwards. A life of almost constant moving back and fro. How utterly different to the ordered life of Haran. Quite different indeed. But God, God's covenant promises were made to Abraham. And they were fulfilled. And God did make of him a great man and a great nation that followed. The great nation through whom... Abraham's Redeemer would follow. That's the Lord Jesus Christ, you see. His descendants would become a mighty nation. And indeed, his descendants would be believing Israel as well. And so then, to the exiles in Babylon who would hear and read Isaiah 51 verses 1, 2, and 3, would come the assurance that if the Lord could raise up Abraham and Sarah to believe in him and make a nation of them, then he certainly, God certainly had the power to bring about their return to Jerusalem and to Judah. God had the power to raise up an Abraham. He therefore had the power 
to bring his people, Abraham's descendants, back to Jerusalem. God had the power to do that. He is the mighty God. Abraham was called of God, so we, we learn here. He says, I called him alone in verse 2. Called of God. And that calling is in a perfect tense. It means God called and it was final. Nothing could be added to it and it couldn't be taken away. Abram called of God. He was greatly blessed and he became many. He multiplied. And here was a reminder to the people who would be in exile to look back, you see, and to remember the grace and the mercy of God toward Abraham. And so too, to them, the exiles, the remnant in exile, remember God's dealings with Abraham. Don't miss the point of what is being said here. Abraham and Sarah were brought to faith in the living God. And so the remnant were to look back at Abraham and Sarah and recognize that they were their spiritual descendants and shared in their faith, even as much as today, you who are in Jesus Christ here this morning. You are one of the descendants of Abraham by faith. You are one of his descendants. You have the same God. You believe in the same God that Abraham dealt with. The same God who brought Abraham to faith is the one who brought you to faith. Same God. And that's the wonder of it. And so, what God did for Abraham and Sarah, he would do for those who would be in exile. He would save them. It's helpful to look back and to consider the mercy of God towards us, towards you, Christian, through the grace of Jesus Christ. It does us good sometimes just to look back and see how God in his providence led us to perhaps a certain church to listen to the preaching of the gospel, perhaps to come under the sound of a a Sunday school teacher who loved Christ and who faithfully opened the word of God, of a Christian who told you about Jesus Christ in your need of him. And you can look back and you can say, isn't God glorious that he worked in my life to bring me to the place where I heard his call to repent of my sins and believe in Jesus? And as you look back, you're just filled with amazement that God could do that for you, for me, that's the God of Abraham. That's the God of the exile. The people, the believers in exile, you see, that's our hope too. Think about Joseph, uh, who was imprisoned in a pit by his brothers and was about to be sold into slavery. He was put in a pit, not the best place to be, so deep that he himself could not clamber out of it. He could not get out. He could not make a, a, a escape from that a situation that he was in. He was a captive within that pit, you see. It required his own brothers to actually help him to get out of the pit as they sold him into slavery in Egypt. He couldn't get out. And that's exactly what sin does to you and me. We're in the pit of sin 
and try as you will. You cannot get out. I could not get out. But there's the tender mercy of Jesus Christ to you and me. He reached out to us and he snatched us up out of that miry pit, as the psalmist says. That's what he delights in doing. It was the Saviour who came and rescued us. And if you this morning are imprisoned in the pit of sin, it will not give you up, and neither can you extricate yourself. But our, our blessed Saviour, Jesus Christ, has the power and ability to reach out to you and to rescue you, to take you out of that pit of sin and to transform you and make you a child of God and to make you a new creation. And so let's look at the third verse, which is the lifting up of the downcast. The lifting up of the downcast. And what a strange, uh, strange verse it really is. <clears throat> it says, The Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places. He will make her wilderness like Eden and her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in a thanksgiving and the voice of melody. Lifting up of the downcast. Now, the Lord pledged to comfort his people, and it was an emphatic statement and an accomplished truth for the remnants. God said he would do it, and he did. God's promise made, God's promise kept. And it's certainly... It is certainly the same for those of us who know and love Christ. We have the assured comfort of our Saviour who never, ever will abandon us. Now, Zion or Jerusalem, as we have it here in verse 3, would be an absolute ruin and desolation after the Babylonian siege. The territory of Judah was in a similar state and would be desolate. It would be a wasteland, as it is described here. It would be desolate. It would be uninhabited, except for the very few who were left behind. And as you look at the picture that Isaiah paints, it is a picture of despair, of destruction and desolation. But the Lord promised, the Lord promised at least to restore the remnant in exile, to get them back to Jerusalem. Read Ezra and Nehemiah. Did they return to a Jerusalem that was just like it was when the Babylonians besieged the city? No. They returned to an absolute ruin and they had to work hard to repair the damage that had been made, you see. It's a picture of despair that we're looking at here. And yet, the Lord promises to restore the remnant in exile. But the promise doesn't end just in getting them back to Jerusalem and to Judah. The Lord promised to change things completely so that Judah and Jerusalem would become like Eden or the garden of the Lord. There would be beauty, peace and provision for the remnant. And the contrast is astonishing. Desolation, waste, and yet on the other hand, the promise of God of beauty and peace and so on. An absolutely delightful place. 
and you think about the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve walking in it and having fellowship with Almighty God, a place of unusual beauty and splendor and where God was. What fellowship, what a place that was, you see. And here's the sharp contrast of God is going to do something so unusual for his people. I would hasten to say to you that God did not make Jerusalem and Judah like the garden of the Lord, for that could not be because of sin. So what the Lord is saying here is something far bigger, something far greater than you can imagine. This is not just a beautiful garden, but Isaiah is pointing to the place where God is in glory and where his people then will be in his presence and we will have fellowship with God, fellowship with our Father, fellowship with his Son, unbroken fellowship and a place that is indescribably sublime and delightful. It's looking far ahead Yes, God would partially fulfill his promise to the exiles in Babylon, but it's looking at the end of all things when we are with Christ, you see. And that's a wonderful thing to consider. And God's mercy and kindness would again be seen and known, which would be like the creation occurring all over again. And look at the outcome of God's recreation joy and gladness, thanksgiving, praise to God, and God always rejoicing, or God's people at least always rejoicing in his limitless mercy and love and kindness. So what we're looking at here is the wonder of salvation in Christ Jesus, for it is through Jesus Christ alone that we can have these remarkable benefits and it is through salvation in Christ Jesus that we who are sinners are made new creatures or a new creation when we are granted repentance unto life. Our lives can be like the ruins of Zion, like desolate wasteland. And yet as the Lord has pledged and promised, he will forgive your sins and make your life to be like the Garden of Eden, like the Garden of the Lord. And the contrast tells, says it all. You know, Christian, once you loved sin, it was your delight. I mean, you, you wallowed in sin. It was so attractive to you. And Christ called you and had mercy upon you. And he changed you. He made you a new creature. God had mercy on you. And you have peace with God. And you know in your heart that he's with you through all the length of your life. And then when you cross the river, the river of death, ah, it's not the end of everything. No, it's just taking you into that glorious place where Christ is. And you will enjoy the Lord there forever. That's a place of bliss. That's what we're looking at there. And the question I have to ask those of you this morning who do not know Christ, 
Are you a new creation? Do you know that recreating work of the Lord Jesus Christ, have you asked the Lord to transform you and to make you his child? His promise of mercy is such that he cannot fail and he will not fail you. And you may come to Christ with a trembling, little, small, weak faith. But oh, he loves to hear the cry of the weakest saint and the feeblest words asking for mercy. And will he not fully save the one who comes to him? That's his promise and that's what he does. So Isaiah spelled out the hope and comfort of God in bringing the remnant back to Jerusalem. Everyone who is a Christian is in exile in this life. We're just passing through, but we have the hope and comfort of being with the Lord Jesus Christ in heaven. And we are now in the wastelands of Judah, so to speak, but we will be in the garden of the Lord at the end of this life. You know, listen to the words of the Lord Jesus as you have it in John 14, where he says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Those are the words of Jesus. They are certain, they are true. They've been the comfort of countless, countless numbers of God's people. They're a comfort to you and me to this day. And that's the comfort of the blessed hope. Doesn't it take the, the sting out of sorrow, the sting out of death and parting? That comfort does. Does it not provide encouragement to you and me in all the strange troubles of this life? Indeed it does. So here is a message of comfort that came to God's people who would be in exile. Surely a message of comfort to you and me. And may God bless his word to our hearts.